Well, welcome again to our show. Sit there, watch the show, listen to the show, about 30 minutes. I have a fantastic guest today. I'll tell you about him in just a minute. But first, I just want to remind everyone the purpose of this show, the passion behind it is that I just have always in my leadership development firm, Valerie Company, had a passion for developing authentic leaders, men and women who walk their talk, who don't compromise their integrity. And so for going on to five years now, I've had fabulous guests like the one today. So let me tell you a little bit. You know, change, oh my gosh, it's happening so often. And why is it so hard? And how do we influence others when chaos just mm, captivates our world? And that's kind of what's happening today. Our guest today has written his latest book to give us not good, not better, but the best ways to handle change as leaders and those who are aspiring to be. Stay tuned. Welcome to our podcast, Doing It Right. This podcast reveals authentic stories from successful leaders doing it right. It's about their journey to become a leader, their choices, motivations, and lessons. In essence, how they built successful personal brands. Your host is Valerie Sokolowski, author of eight leadership books and nationally known as an authority on executive presence and personal branding. Let's get started. Here's Valerie. Before we go into this interview, I have to thank Betty Ryder Boutique. Yes, their shop at Preston Center is behind a red door. Thus, you won't forget this brochure that I have. I think this is one of the most fun blouses I've ever worn, all the holes in it. Really cool things. You stop by and when you do, tell the shop owner or those who work there, you heard about Betty Ryder Boutique on this show, Doing It Right, and you'll get, listen to this, $100 off of anything you purchase. So stop by, you won't be sorry. Okay, you know, uh, gosh, as an author myself, I know what it takes to write a book or more, and the process fascinates me. I want to welcome Eric Van Alstein to the show. Welcome, Eric. Thank you, Valerie. It is uh, great to be here with you all. Well, I'm holding this current book that we're going to talk about. It's titled Automatic Influence. Wouldn't that be awesome? New Power for Change in the Work and Life. And you've written how many books, Eric? Well, a good amount more than uh, one, but that this is the first one uh, to be published. So there's eight books in the works uh, behind the scenes because I've been doing this a while. <laughs> when I interviewed you before the show, I was amazed and tell us how many books you have read from what age and how many things you write every day. So from an early age, I've had this insatiable curiosity about how things work, how the world works, how life works. Um, you know, I, in fact, I remember uh, being young at Christmas time and getting like a little, uh, a little toy with the Godzilla head. Uh, with, you know, you, you pull the toggle and the mouth moves. And uh, I enjoyed that for about a day. And then it was this question of what is making the mouth move? And now I'm probably six, eight years old here. So I'm taking a Godzilla apart for the sake of science. And I don't think I ever put it back together again. But always I've had this insatiable curiosity about how things work. 
and have been reading uh, books about history and and even you know things like economics uh, and and philosophy and psychology uh, for years and years. Uh, it started back when I was very young. Uh, again, just following my curiosity uh, where it leads. And today I have a library of about a thousand books, and uh, and they're they're large books, substantial books, typical averages a few hundred to you know three to five hundred pages. And uh, I have read seven hundred of them, cover to cover, with notes. And so it's just all about. Figure, again, figuring out how things work. And that curiosity has driven me to habits of reading, uh, which eventually became, uh, in my late 30s, habits of writing as well. All right. I have to ask you, we all enjoy reading, I think, but wow, that's over the top. Is there a way to read without reading every word that you can then learn to get through the book and capture the nuggets. And you and I talked about you simplify how you write the book. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I really believe uh, in the concept of irreducible simplicity. In other words, let's make them as simple as they can be without being too simplistic, because it is possible to be simplistic, meaning that, for example, there's this, this quote that says, if you believe you'll achieve. And I like that quote, it's just missing a few ingredients. For instance, if you're tone deaf and you're trying to achieve on American Idol or any other kind of auditioning, it doesn't matter how much you believe. So you need belief, plus you need the singing voice, plus you need the willingness to invest and, and you need a little luck and all that. There's a lot of ingredients in the mix and it just so happens that belief is one of them, but one ingredient is not the cake. And so it's really important for us to be simple, but only as simple as we can be without breaking the, the recipe, so to speak, right? You know, if I want a simpler form of cake, well, I can't go beyond the six ingredients that make cake. I'm not gonna get cake and get it something different. So I've always had this philosophy uh, in my thinking and in my writing to break things down and boil things down into their simplest functional form. I call it irreducible simplicity. What's as simple as I could say this without losing much of its meaning? So I've had that kind of approach and taken that kind of approach to problem solving, to leadership, uh, to my reading. And I will say in my reading, I definitely, I definitely read all the words. You know how it goes. Your mind kind of skims from one thing to another. I am not a speed reader. I heard someone say, you know, I took a speed reading course and my speed, my just speed went up, but my comprehension plummeted. And I think right. that's kind of what it is. Uh, you know, you can't necessarily... Uh, you can't get a, you can't shortcut the process and succeed. Now I'll also tell you this, that as far as reading goes, I typically can't read that much without getting tired, 15, 30 minutes maximum. And I'm tired, especially the kind of stuff I'm reading. It's not just light fiction. It's dense conceptual stuff. So what I find is that I can do it in short bursts. I can read a little bit, then go, go uh, do something else and take a short reading break. And when I do those short breaks more frequently, mm -hmm. I find that I have the ability to get through things and get through things to comprehend. Because I'm not just trying to burn pages, I'm trying to understand, I'm trying to make sense of my life and the world and, and the things that uh, I believe that I'm called to do in it. You know, thank you for bringing that up, what you're called to do, because one of your top takeaways that you shared with me was, um, let's see, how did you say it, purpose, when you figure it out, it really comes down to your natural strengths. So, so true. when it is true, isn't it? If we just yeah. really think about 
what do we do well? Well, those are our God-given gifts. And how can we apply then what we do well instead of forget about focusing on your weaknesses? I'm sorry. I will never be a computer person, but I'm learning it, right? So go back to finding your purpose. That isn't easy, Eric, for people. I want you to share with the audience how you do that. Oh, well, that's really good. I think I think it's important to get guidance. Uh, in fact, I remember back to high school, and uh, this kind of dates me a little bit, but this is when computers like first came out and our guidance counselor, our guidance office had this extensive survey and it was done on a little screen with, you know, green, green uh, kind of pixelated uh, type. And you could tell, I mean, it's the earliest kind of survey that they had, but it was basically a, a career or aptitude survey. It was pretty extensive. And I was like 10th or 11th grade at this point, probably 10th grade, and took the assessment and out came, of all crazy things, mechanical engineering. I had no clue. <laughs> My parents didn't know anything about college. I wanted to go to college, but I didn't exactly know what to do. So when it came out mechanical engineering, I thought, well, I'll just do it. Uh, so one of the good schools in the country is the University of Washington for engineering. And I went to the University of Washington and got my degree. And I didn't really know what I was going to do with it. I didn't really sense that uh, being an engineer and doing calculations and all that was what I was supposed to do, more of a people person. In fact, when we did our senior project, funny thing was uh, we built a car and we took it to Detroit and raced it at the proving grounds uh, at GM, General Motors. And, uh, and, and then there was a person that would present the car uh, and then there are other people that would build it, race it. I was the presenter, right? So I knew to how to present. I enjoy the process of interacting with people, communicating ideas is so fun for me. So it just didn't feel like I had the engineering makeup. Well, what I know now is that engineering is the art and science of problem solving. Mm -hmm. it's, it's getting from A to B with the least amount of work with the in the simplest way possible. It's making the vacuum cleaner that sucks up the dirt and the car that goes down the road. And if those things don't happen, you failed as an engineer. So I love the fact that it's so practical and it's science, but it's also art and it's problem solving. Hmm. And I felt like I got the ability to do that and learn how that problem solving works. And then I took it into being an entrepreneur. I started, uh, I've been an entrepreneur for 31 years. In fact, uh, you, you've got a book you know, about doing it right. I think I could write a book doing it wrong because I've done a, a lot of that in the past and uh, 30 plus years of being an entrepreneur is good, bad, and ugly. Fortunately, the second half, it was better than the first half and a lot of lessons uh, come out of that. But I think purpose starts to unpack as you get counsel, as you look out at the world, you go into the world and try things. I can remember thinking that I might want to do such and such. And I got a chance to get around someone who did such and such. And I spent some time with them only to realize that what it looks like from the outside in is not the same as what it looks like from the inside out. When you're actually doing it, it's not the same. And so I found, now nah, I really don't want to do that. But then this other thing I really did want to do. So uh, basically, I think it, it purpose is something that gets unpacked and unveiled. And I love the, the concept of calling. It's like you're listening for purpose. Mm -hmm. Where am I in this 
sense of flow. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a guy named Mich- uh, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi. It's a crazy long name that you, you look at. It's even more confusing than it sounds. But he comes up with this idea or he's, he's talked about this idea called flow. And it's optimal psychological experiences. It's times where we lose track of time, lose our sense of self. It's like we're lost in the moment. And afterwards, we reflect back on it as some of the most enjoyable experiences of our lives. Well, we can find purpose in that way, like detecting where do we lose track of time and sense of self. And I'm not talking about scrolling TikTok, social media, video games, that kind of thing. I'm talking about what kind of work, what kind of productive service to the world is is happening when you're losing track of time and losing sense of self. And that usually is a hint, like a, a calling, a sense of uh, purpose and direction. And uh, for me, I found that as an entrepreneur, but I also found that as a thinker and as a writer and started a writing habit back in the year 2005 that I have kept to this day. Uh, and that, you know, once you find purpose, I think there's process. And the process is the building out of purpose. And it is not something that just happens uh, overnight. It's something that happens over decades, over years and years. And so the other thing I would advise is to be patient in purpose. Purpose unfolds slowly sometimes. And not knowing what your sense of calling is early on does not mean that you will never know that sense of calling. Oh, that's so full of wisdom. My goodness, we could go back and put that whole paragraph in the in the show notes because it was awesome. You know, I had a very interesting thing happen to your point about finding your purpose, not what you think somebody's purpose is for you, including okay. parents. <laughs> but uh, a woman worked for me for a time, and she was just as, as, as fun to work with me as, as she could be great personality and one day she came to me and she said valerie i hope you'll understand this i have loved working with you but i'm gonna go do what you do Ah. and just like my expression now i was kind of like taken back thank goodness as a leader you learn to pause and i said okay well congratulations, and what does that look like? And she said, well, I don't know. I just want to inspire people. Ah. And so, yes, look at what you do well. Don't get your mind on your mindset on somebody else and what they do and try to copy. That's, you know, we're all unique. We have a thumbprint like nobody else's. So I want to ask you an off-the-cuff question. If you could be a character in any movie, what would you be? Oh, goodness sakes. You know, I've asked if I had a superhero quality, you know, would you want to fly? Would you want to <laughs> bend steel bars? And what I think I would want is convincibility, right? Not invincibility, convincibility. In other words, you got the bad guys at the beginning of the movie, you got the good guys, yeah. and the good guys go over to the bad guys and go, hey, you know what? I think we should change our thinking here. And the, the bad guys end up going, I think you're right. They get one over, roll the credits stories over so uh no i don't know if that's a superpower uh, or a character but um i think my wife would have some great answers to that question um and uh i don't know if i could exactly say but that is a great way to think about uh purpose as well right so do you have have a sense of that like like a character that you would like to be me yes well the queen anything that's a queen (laughs) (laughs) 
Eric, you have six, you have six children. I so, do. Yeah. Uh, are they all? Well, let me ask it differently. Of the six children, do you see yourself in all of them? Some of them, six children. Tell us about that. Oh, you know what's crazy is how different they are, mm -hmm. and I would say. There's attributes of my personality, certainly that I can see, you know, the seed doesn't fall too far from the tree, you know what they say. Yep. But then there's other things I'm like, boy, this is just, I mean, and from the beginning, this is totally different. These people are not the same. Uh -huh. And uh, so I would say there's definitely some, actually I've got a granddaughter that boy, oh. it's it's a scary likeness. <laughs> so I don't know exactly, but I do have, uh, yeah, I have six children, uh, three boys, three girls. Uh, my wife and I, when we were first dating, she said, I always wanted to have six kids. I'm like, wow, that is unbelievable. <laughs> Let's get started. So when we got married, we had uh, six in eight years. So they're very close in age together as we speak. One, I think the youngest is 23, becoming 24 soon. And then the oldest is 31. Uh, at this point, uh, 32, you know how those ages, they all change. Uh, but yeah, six kids in eight years, uh, four of them are married. So now it's 10 and seven grandchildren. And so I'm going to be 55 next month. And uh, my quiver is full, man. I got a lot of good happening everywhere in my life, but they're all different. All yes. different. Yes. Well, I can speak the same language with my children as well. You had something that was really a pivot point we talked about on September, in September of 2005. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. Well, you know, that, all that curiosity uh, has built up into all these things that I've learned. And, and I, like I said, really enjoyed the process of figuring things out and just understanding. So it was the delighted understanding that really drove me to jump into these books. I've read more than, you know, hundreds of biographies and history. And like I told you, psychology, cognitive science, uh, re uh, read a lot of these things. And actually, just to be honest with you, I started out as an entrepreneur, built a company from a desk beside the bed to about uh, 80 employees over seven years, multi-millions in sales, and quickly ran into uh, people problems, uh, you know, all things, right? I mean, you know, I didn't really, uh, I didn't even fathom as a business leader what level of people problems that I would run into and how challenging they were. You know, if the business makes sense, the business model makes sense. seems like you should just be able to go forward, everybody work together, get along, do great work, and off we go. But that doesn't happen. So I ran into the buzzsaw of people problems quickly early on in the, in the late 90s as an entrepreneur. And so that was always back in my mind is how can I dig into the mechanisms of mind and motive and help people uh, cure dysfunction, be more constructive, be more effective. So it's always in the back of my mind. A lot of my later reading had been that. So I get to the year 2005 and I had a little bit of uh, time freedom uh, by that point in business. And I decided that, you know, all this stuff going in, I need to start getting it out. And how would I do that? My best solution for getting it out of me, out of my heart and mind, was to just simply put it on paper and develop a practice of doing that. So I decided I'm going to take the first two hours of my day. As soon as I wake up, you know, this morning, I woke up at six. Some other days I wake up at four. So somewhere between four and six, I wake up and a little bit of time uh, just uh, in meditation and time just uh, I, I read scripture every morning uh, and spend a little time that way. But then it's the first appointment of the day. Uh, I go in and I write, and I've been doing that since September of 2005, 
Hmm. And I quickly realized it was very therapeutic. I really enjoyed the process itself, not just the outcome. A lot of times people say, I want to write a book, so I'm going to lock myself in a cabin for 30 days and I'm going to write a book because they really want to get that book done. And that might work for them. That would never work for me. I'd go nuts. I mean, 30 <laughs> days in a cabin, I'd be 30 minutes in, the, you know, maybe 30 hours. 30 hours in, I'd be stir crazy. It would be all over. It wouldn't work. So uh, loving the process of what I discovered that I, I just had this passion for the process of figuring things out and the joy like I said, of getting past complexity into a place of elegant simplicity mm. with my ideas and with my words. And so the writing habit began at, it, and, it, and it continued to, to the point where basically 300 days a year, uh, about six days a week, and I take some vacations. I do, you know, sometimes write seven days a week, but basically every morning, first appointment of the day, I don't take morning appointments uh, and I've done this writing now for over 17 years wow. since that time, wow. 300 days a year, two hours a day, it's 600 hours a year, at least it's usually more than that. And I crossed my 10,000th hour of writing last April. Uh, so I'm well past what, you know, they call the 10,000 hour rule. Although I wasn't going for 10,000 hours, I was just digging uh in fact what i find is kind of like digging a hole you know you go in you you you, you dig you come back the hole's a little bigger you keep digging and eventually that hole becomes a cavern or maybe another analogy would be like building a wall you know how they build the great wall of china one brick at a time right. just stack the bricks put a brick down put another brick down brick 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 and all of a sudden you know 17 years later ah there's something there that wasn't there before big wall and did so you see it, what Eric? I, have you seen the brick the wall the China I, wall? Oh, my goodness. Yes. In fact, I, as I told you, about 3,000 hours into my writing, I discovered what I'm now teaching as perceptual intelligence. Uh -huh. And it's a way to solve people problems in the workplace. Uh, it's, it's usually a large-scale thing. It's large organizations that are taking this on in order to develop their culture. And it gets to the root causes of these people problems, curing dysfunction, developing productive qualities in people. And when you fix a root cause, you can make some big time fixes. So I discovered a lot of what is now called perceptual intelligence about 3000 hours. So imagine me digging in my little hole in, in the hole. I strike gold at hour 3000 and the next seven, 8,000 of those hours so far have all been mining this vein of gold, uh -huh. which is what I call perceptual intelligence. Now and we have four books in the perceptual intelligence series of automatic influence is one of them. And uh, contrary to what people think, automatic influence is not about us managing other people's perceptions or influencing others as in as much as us managing our own perceptions of self, others, situations in life so that we can be highly constructive in every area of life, in our emotions, our motivations and behaviors. So it's really about servant leadership. It's about character development. Uh, and it just so happens that when you can identify root causes, you can make changes that are fast, that are extensive that are very, very effective. And that's what we're doing in the workplace. But it all started with just getting in there, following the process, enjoying the process, making discoveries, like you said, about purpose. I think real purpose for me came about, like I said, hour 3000, I discovered something that is now being celebrated as a very effective solution to some real problems. And it's just a joy to be able to see that happen. 
You know, I, that was awesome. And one of the nuggets that just hit me in my heart that I would reiterate is, uh, and it leads to purpose, is you, you've got to just get in there and dig. Life is, life's joys aren't just going to come to you. I was speaking to a younger person not so long ago, and he said, I just don't know what I want to do. And so he was stuck. He really was just stuck. He didn't know what kind of a job to look for. He didn't really have much of a uh, ambition to go and look for it. And mm. all I could say to him was pretty much what you said, and that is, it's a process. Be patient, but do put the feet on the street and try something. Eric, right. this uh, <laughs> under the banner audience, you will see all the information about Eric, about his book, about perceptual intelligence, his company. I've been involved with it, and he's got some very different and good perceptions about different than emotional intelligence. It's more about perceptual intelligence. So Eric, yes. if there's one last thing you can say to all of the audience, men, women, all ages, but all either wanting to be a leader or in the leadership roles, what would you leave with us? You know, I would say celebrating the work is really the key and loving work for its own sake. I think a lot of times we use work as a means to get money, to get freedom, to get leisure, uh, you know, that the whole leisure trap is a, is a, it's a big trap. I think that we're happiest when we're out there making things happen. Um, Theodore Ru Rubin said that happiness does not come from do doing easy work, but it comes from the afterglow of satisfaction of when, when you're achieving a challenging task that demands your very best. The afterglow of satisfaction is that you worked, you went out and did something and even if that something doesn't look glamorous, it's not about what like your parents wanted, something your parents wanted you to do. It's not about something society says that you should do. It's about going out and doing the simple work of making life happen, making good things happen. And we are about as happy as we make up our minds to be. We are about as happy as we decide to make good things happen in our lives, which means, I mean, for example, I just did a garage makeover, right? My own garage completely made over, cleaned up, perfectly in shape. What a joy that brings. I think everyone right now, if you're wondering what to do, go clean your garage. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of stuff to do if you just go out and you decide to get at it. And I think another thing too, is I was thinking about your friend with their, with their goal and they're wondering what to do, is if you don't have a goal, I heard a, a famous motivator once told me this and says that make finding a goal your goal. Now you have a goal. Get on the quest for that purpose. Figure out what those things are. And you know that the truth is you can't steer a bike that's not rolling. Get pedaling. Get that bike rolling. And then figure out where you should take the turns and when. Listen, I'm going to hire you as a motivational speaker anywhere I can find that you can speak. This has been incredible. You've inspired me on a lot of levels. I'm going to go back now and listen to every word you said because they really were uh, Eric, in all seriousness, a lot of wonderful uh, points, salient points to make and inspiration all along the way. I want to thank you so much for being on the show and taking time. 
Thank you, Valerie. It's my you, pleasure. You bet. Okay, audience. So you know that I always end with a Valerieism, and so here it is today. My Valerieism is really pretty simple. It is simply do it right always. Now, this came to me because I have experienced through my career often when someone I'm told about or in my own business hands in something that isn't doing it right, meaning misspelled words, a lot of that. No spell check doesn't always get it or unfinished thoughts or whatever it is. Now, am I too critical? No, I don't think so. I'm professional. And I expect something that is handed to me that I have asked someone for to be completed completed staff work, number one, and professional, number two. And so I hope that resonates with you. Whatever you do in your role, do it right. Now, one final thing. I want to remind you that Monday Morning Leadership for Women is now an eight-week course. It's incredible. I love it. Now, yes, I wrote the book and the book is fun because it was two people talking and both of them a mentee and a mentor in leadership. And I took those eight chapters and I developed with a lot of help a course that is rolled out, rolling out, will continue to roll out just email me, Valerie at ValerieAndCompany.com and bring it into your company. Or let's get a cohort of people that you know would appreciate it together. Let's go for it, okay? Until next time, keep doing it right. Bye for now. Thanks for listening. To receive Valerie's voice, free monthly leadership tips, and to learn more about her leadership programs and coaching, visit her website, ValerieAndCompany.com. Next week, we'll be here again to inspire, engage, and equip you with teachable points of view from successful leaders who have been doing it right. Until then, lead authentically.